All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is November 2nd, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class, which is the only class of this week, going to be on Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. So we'll be going into uh, not only the period Democratic Kampuchea itself, but a little bit of background before that, as well as a Vietnamese intervention that ended it, and a little bit about the uh, People's Republic of Kampuchea that followed. It's a really necessary class, especially as we you know do different classes this year about ultra-leftism and the history of that. Uh, Kampuchea is an example of that. So that's why we decided that this was a really relevant class to have. So we'll go ahead and get started with the class. So as I said, tonight's class is on Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. And what we're going to be learning today is about the background on politics in the region of Indochina and the history of the Indochinese CP and the formation of the Khmer Rouge. Uh, we'll also be learning a little bit about the history of democratic Kampuchea under Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge and the genocide that was committed during this era. And we're going to learn about the Vietnamese intervention in 1979 and the establishment of the People's Republic of Kampuchea. Uh, that followed. Indochina Communists. Basic info about Kampuchea. Kampuchea, also known as Cambodia, is a country in Southeast Asia and is bordered by Thailand and Laos to the north and Vietnam to the east and south and has a coastline on the Gulf of Thailand. The country has a population of about 6.3 million people in 1976, 6 million people in 1979, and has 16.86 million today. The capital city, which is also the most populated city, is Phnom Penh. Cambodia was a colony of France between 1867 and 1953. Between 1941 and 1945, it was occupied by Japan. Upon independence, it existed as a constitutional monarchy known as the Kingdom of Cambodia. ICP was created at the Comintern's request. In 1929, the Communist Party of Indochina, only active in Tonkin, and Communist Party of Anon were formed, and in February of 1930, they joined together with the Communist League of Indochina to form the Vietnamese China Communist Party. The Comintern criticized the Vietnamese Communist movement for its factionalism at the time, and brought Ho Chi Minh to Hong Kong to preside over a conference to unite the communist formations in Indochina and rename the party to the Indochinese Communist Party. After this occurred, the Indochinese communists, especially the Vietnamese, got to work building the party, setting up mass organizations and training cadre for a revolutionary struggle. In November of 1945, the Indochinese Communist Party issued a communique to dissolve itself under pressure from China and the U.S. Kampuchea, the revolution rescued by Erwin Silber. The Indochinese Communist Party. According to Pol Pot, the founding of the Indochinese Communist Party by Ho Chi Minh in 1930 was itself a reflection of Vietnam's hegemonic aspirations. This event is described in the Black Paper in the following manner. The Vietnamese Party founded in 1930 by the name of Indochinese Communist Party, the name Indochinese Communist Party clearly and sufficiently means that it is a party for the three countries of Indochina. Thus, 
The name given to the Vietnamese party means that this party is at one and the same for Vietnam, Laos, and Kampuchea. The choice of such a name reveals that the objective of this party is to dominate the three countries. While the Black Paper conveniently omits certain well-known facts about the founding of the ICP, particularly that the name and concept behind it was adopted at the urging of the Comintern and that a member of Vietnamese communists, including Ho Chi Minh, were at first opposed to the Comintern's directive, there is a more fundamental point of history at stake in this particular debate, namely the relative strategic significance of the Vietnamese Revolution to the revolutions in the other two Indochinese countries. All egalitarian prejudice to the contrary, ultimately what must be recognized is that the anchor of the revolutionary process in Indochina has been and continues to be the Vietnamese Revolution. In a broad historical sense, the Vietnamese Revolution has not only set the conditions for the revolution in the other countries of Indochina, the success of the revolutionary process in Laos and Kampuchea has historically been dependent on the forward notion of the Vietnamese Revolution. Historical materialists will not have difficulty in grasping this concrete expression of the law of uneven development. Despite the glory and achievements of ancient Angkor, Vietnam was the jewel in France's 20th century Indochina colonial empire. Its large population base, approximately six times the combined population of Laos and Kampuchea, readily accessible natural resources and natural harbors, made it the focal point for French capital's exploitation of the whole region. While the working class in all three Indochinese countries was relatively small, it was most developed in Vietnam, where labor-intensive rubber plantations, a burgeoning coal mining industry, and a number of major urban centers and seaports had brought about the beginnings of a modern proletariat. As a result, even in Kampuchea, the workers on the rubber plantations and many of the low-level civil servants were Vietnamese, were brought into the country by the French. Not surprisingly, resistance to the French was also at a more advanced stage of struggle in Vietnam than in either Laos or Kampuchea, again, a reflection of the objective level of development of the Vietnamese economy and the relative intensity of the class antagonisms. It is not simply a historical accident, therefore, much less a conscious plot, that Marxism-Leninism came to the Indochinese Revolution by way of Vietnam. The emergence in the 1920s of a generation of Vietnamese revolutionaries, typified by Ho Chi Minh, and the existence of a class of Vietnamese who could provide the social base for revolutionary politics reflected, in addition to a worldwide ripening of the anti-colonial movement generally, the intensification of the contradictions within Vietnamese society in which its relatively advanced level of capitalist development was an important and decisive factor. While those broad historical conditions help explain why Marxism-Leninism and a communist movement developed in Vietnam earlier than in Laos and Kampuchea, the 1930 decision to found an Indochinese rather than just a Vietnamese communist party reflects both the internationalist orientation of the communists and their strategic conception of the revolutionary struggle. With France, the dominant colonial power in all three Indochinese countries, a unified revolutionary strategy, which, at the time, could only have been undertaken by a single Indochinese party, was at a historical necessity. 
as the French sociologist Serge Thion has noted, the decision to create a single party for Indochina seems to have been determined by ordinary common sense. Of course, the founding of an Indochinese Communist Party could not, by itself, suddenly position the communists as the leading force in the revolutionary movements of their respective countries. More favorable conditions for such a development did exist in Vietnam, and during the next decade, Vietnamese communists did indeed become the vanguard of the anti-colonial struggle. In both Laos and Kampuchea, on the other hand, the establishment of the ICP was the first step in a process which would require almost two decades before it began to mature to a point resembling the situation in Vietnam in the early 30s. In Kampuchea, again, not surprisingly, the initial political penetration took place principally among resident Vietnamese workers in the large Vietnamese minority communities. Nevertheless, the founding of the ICP represented the beginning of the qualitative transformation in both Laos and Kampuchea of what had been, up until then, a purely spontaneous nationalist sentiment among the masses, a sentiment framed by the assumptions of bourgeoisie nationalism and with only the most rudimentary organizational forms to give it a political expression to a process guided by an advanced anti-imperialist consciousness. Origin of the Khmer Rouge Post-ICP Indochinese parties. Members of the ICP would go on to reestablish communist parties in their respective countries in the early 1950s, including the Workers' Party of Vietnam and Kampuchean People's Revolutionary Party, KPRP, in 1951 and the Lao People's Party in 1955. The KPRP created a legal party, Krom Prachichum, to participate in the National Assembly elections in 1955 and 1958. It gained little support in the, these elections and was driven underground in 1962. Two factions began to form, the urban faction with similar views to the Vietnamese that the government of Sihanouk was a valuable asset in the struggle in the liberation of South Vietnam, and a rural faction which advocated an immediate overthrow of Sihanouk. Siu Heng led the rural committee, but then actually defected to the Sihanouk government and gave them intel, which led to the destruction of most of the party's rural apparatus. Pol Pot. Pol Pot, born South Sar, was a Cambodian who was born to a wealthy farmer in 1925. He was able to attend elite schools in Cambodia and in Paris, and upon return to Cambodia, he went to the North Vietnamese and pleaded for a military operation against Sihanouk, to which the North Vietnamese denied the request and told Pol Pot to take up a political struggle instead. Sihanouk was then overthrown by Lon Nol in a U.S.-backed right-wing coup in 1970. Sihanouk fled to China, where Pol Pot was, and the Chinese and Vietnamese parties convinced Sihanouk and Pol Pot to form a national united front of Kampuchea to fight Lon Nol's government. Pol Pot then flew to Hanoi and pleaded Le Duan for the Vietnamese to provide the Khmer Rouge with weapons to overthrow Lon Nol themselves. Liaduan instead launched an invasion of Cambodia to attack Lon Nol's government, officially pulling Cambodia 
into the Vietnam War and bringing U.S. bombing raids to Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge would take reign after Vietnamese withdrawal. Right, and with that, we'll stop for our first round of questions and comments. I was active in this whole movement. It was during my lifetime. And in the Communist Party, we were very into this whole thing. This happened at the same time, give or take a few a few years, as what happened in Afghanistan and what happened in uh, Grenada. So it was the same culprits. In each of the cases, it was the ultra-left that actually destroyed the party and assassinated the leadership of the revolution. And so therefore, you have to look at the similarities. It's too, it's too weird to be not a campaign of ideological campaign against the communist movement from the what Lenin called infantile disorder. That's what he called them, infantile disorder. Notice how they split from the main group. So Lonell was originally was the person who overthrew Sihanouk. Sihanouk was a ally of Vietnam. So look at the idea of a coalition, the idea of a popular front. You can see how it's identical to what we've had in the past. Uh, then the split comes in the communist movement between Pol Pot and, um, and the Ho Chi Minh forces. And so that's all I want to say. Thank you. Pretty early on, it mentioned something about a, a black book or a black paper or something. Um, what is that? From what it seemed, based on the context clues, it was a paper that the Pol Pot forces had put out on what they deemed to be Vietnamese hegemony being placed on them. To me, it seems kind of similar to something like the secret speech or something that's just meant to spread distrust and animosity about the Vietnamese communists. Uh, yeah, just a quick uh, clarification. Did I understand it correctly that there was one communist party that encompassed China, Viet I mean, not China, um, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and Laos? And why was that? Yeah, yeah, it was because the common turn, again, when you have an international formation with all the communist parties, it's not individual, it's a collective, collective. The common turn decided, uh, remember, it was the same common turn who said we had to have one party in this country. When we had two separate parties going, John Reed and the other party uh, going to the common turn, they said, nope. You got to have one representing the whole country. The same thing happened there. You have to have one representing the whole area because they were all part of the French colonial empire. So in order to be opposed to that, have an effective struggle against it, the, the common turn says. So it came from the common turn. And remember, comrades, who was the head of the common turn? The real head. Stop. Remember that. So this is all, anything opposed to that would be objectively opposing Stalin. Thank you. 
So I've done uh, research on this history and everything, and I kind I see why this this whole split had happened just based off of what's going on. Lao and and Vietnam to this day not one country was still two different countries. So like the uneven development of those three countries, it, it makes sense why there was a. There's a. It makes sense why uh, uh, that split happened. The, the the historical the uneven development was just you know, it still existed this day. Cambodia right now is a kingdom. Yeah, and I and I just want to go ahead and add some some context as well. The uh, Indo Chinese Communist Party was dissolved in 1945, November of 1945. I believe the reason was so that they could try to wage a uh, political struggle rather than a militant revolutionary one in their countries, kind of similar to what had gone on in some of the other parts of the world, like in China. But then into the 50s, uh, the different communists in their respective countries in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam set up their own parties. Um, so it wasn't just like the Indo-Chinese Communist Party split into three. It was dissolved, and then those members created the new ones in the 50s. Yeah, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but if each general country has their own material conditions for the revolution, even if the common turn agreed to it, is there any dialectical analysis if it was a good idea to have three countries represented in one party? Even Comrade Angelo, do you have any? Yeah, I want you to understand that that discussion has been with us for a long time. The discussion of the universality of Marxism-Leninism on one side and on the other side, the different roads to socialism in each society in different countries. That has always been a, a, a struggle within the international movement. Remember who pushed the second one. It was Khrushchev. At the 1956 denunciation, he was also pushing for no more models. That was the Khrushchev line. No more models for socialism. Everybody do your own thing according to your country. So I say, I look at the people who are pushing a certain aspect of ideology and where were they in our movement? So I am not favorable to that whole Khrushchev line. I'm much more for the Stalin line, which says that we have a one common turn internationally. Now, remember when the Comintern dissolved, dissolved in 43, I believe it was, and therefore it never came back. That's why we had the problems later on with the different parties splitting. There was no more Comintern to tell them to stay together. Thank you. Uh, you know, Comrade General Secretary brings up a very, very good point. When I first joined the party, my my notion was kind of one of those of the ultra left that, oh, you know, every country is different. And basically every country kind of builds socialism in their own way because they're just different countries with different ethnic groups, all that, all that. Well, it's true that different countries have different ethnic groups, different, um, you know, religions, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of make uh, the socialism building process um Interesting, I guess as you can say. Uh, Marxism, Leninism is applicable 
everywhere, basically. I mean, think about how every we had Marxist Leninist governments in Africa, Latin America, everywhere. So that's kind of just what I wanted to say. You know, the fear that Pol Pot had that Vietnam was going to basically impose this unilateral hegemony on the rest of the region. I just don't think it was well founded. Vietnam, for one, didn't make the decision to be the Indo-Chinese Communist Party. That was the decision of the Comintern. For two, they had never expressed any sort of aim like that. As a matter of fact, later on, the Pol Pot forces had their own, I believe it's called like Irredentism or something, uh, basically where you look at the historical borders of, of previous empires and you want to restore that. Something like Mussolini wanting to restore the Roman Empire or the Germans wanting to restore the Reich. The Cambodians had a similar thing for the Khmer empires from before. Um, and that's actually more evidence than the Vietnamese seeking anything from their previous history. Well, yeah, definitely it wasn't founded on anything other than Pol Pot's nationalist outlook, basically anti-Vietnamese chauvinism. That's pretty much it. This part's going to be on Democratic Kampuchea, Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, and the genocide. Pol Pot in power. With the U.S. military defeat in Indochina and the seizure of power in Kampuchea by the Khmer Rouge, the Pol Pot forces were now positioned to give full political play to their national chauvinist and ultra-left tendencies. As a result, from April 1975 to January 7, 1979, the Kampuchean Revolution became a grim caricature of itself, a period summed up today by the country's Marxist-Leninist leadership as the greatest calamity that ever happened to the Kampuchean people. The facts of this calamity have certainly been well documented by now, Death on a scale warranting the use of the word genocide to measure it, dismantling of much of the country's economic infrastructure, including most of its factories and all of its internal markets, forced evacuation of the cities, and the establishment of a system of virtual slave labor into which the displaced urban population was forced impressed. Abolition of all schools above the primary level, elimination of most of Kampuchea's trained professionals, closing and abandonment of virtually all hospitals, persecution of doctors and other trained medical personnel, shutdown of the nation's pharmacies, and the elimination of most modern-day medicine. The net result of these policies being a national health disaster for the Kampuchean people. The shutdown of all libraries, bookstores, and publishing centers. Forcible suppression of religion, abolition of wages and currency, decimation of the KCP with the killing of most of the party's Marxist-Leninist cadres, and not least of all, a suicidal war against Vietnam 
the early warnings of bourgeois investigators, which many of us on the left simply dismissed as imperialist propaganda, have all been all too grimly confirmed by the Campuchian people themselves. Even former left-wing supporters of the Pol Pot government, as well as Khmer Rouge leaders themselves, now acknowledge that serious mistakes were made during this period. The source of this catastrophe can be traced directly to the nationalist deviation which Pol Pot brought into the Kampuchean communist movement and the policies he developed on the basis of that deviation. The suicidal war with Vietnam, the bizarre ultra-left experiment in social engineering, which comprised Pol Pot's conception of the Kampuchean road to communism, and the ruthless killing of opposition within the KCP were rooted in this narrow nationalist outlook. In this section, we will examine the underlying logic and the actual policies pursued by the Khmer Rouge in these areas. The war with Vietnam. Within weeks of the liberation of Phnom Penh, April 17th, 1975, and Saigon on April 30th, 1975, the long smoldering antagonisms between the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese communists took a new and even more serious military turn. No longer was this a clash between two revolutionary movements. Now both forces held state power on opposite sides of a common border. Although Pol Pot's Maoist apologists continue to assert that these clashes, culminating in the outbreak of full-scale hostilities in late 1978, stemmed from Vietnam's expansionist objectives, more sober-minded sources, such as the Asian Wall Street Journal, January 3, 1980, acknowledged that it was the Pol Pot regime which foolishly goaded Vietnam into the invasion that brought about its own downfall. Sayanuk likewise acknowledges that Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge made provocations against the Vietnamese from when Pol Pot took power in 1975 to 1977. In 1978, Pol Pot and his Khmer Rouge had more and more clashes with the Vietnamese. By all accounts, there was a qualitative escalation in hostilities sometime in mid-1977, following the suppression of the anti-Pol Pot faction of the KCP, whose main base area was the Eastern Zone area bordering on Vietnam. There seems little doubt that the forcible liquidation of the Eastern Zone opposition to Pol Pot was the crucial development which, in effect, cleared the way for the conflict to reach a new level. Even captured Pol Pot documents and interviews with former KCP cadres and soldiers confirm the fact that during most of 1977 and all of 1978, Kampuchean forces were engaged in widespread offensive military activity all along the Vietnam Vietnamese border, and were even operating within Vietnam, 
one Phnom Penh radio broadcast declared. By January 6, 1978, we had completely swept all Vietnamese forces out of our national territory. We continued to fight them until the end of January 1978. In February 1978, we went on attacking, and our attacks were even more powerful. Since all our attacking columns were of division size, after crushing the enemy, we immediately sent our units to fight him on his own territory from the vietnam Campuchia conflict, 1979. Earlier, a report of a July 17, 1977, Eastern Zone Conference of the KCP predicting a large-scale border war with Vietnam included the following explicit statement. We must also be prepared to go into enemy territory to collect intelligence in order to prepare for victorious attacks. Pol Pot's response was a propaganda ruse calling on Vietnam to stop carrying out any act of subversion and interference in the internal affairs of democratic Campuchia to abandon the strategy of setting up an Indo-Chinese Federation, etc. If Vietnam complied with these demands through concrete acts within a period of seven months, said Phnom Penh's note, then conditions might be right for a meeting. In the face of this Khmer Rouge ploy, the Vietnamese stated their original proposal and simplified it even further by aiming at it merely ending armed hostilities. This time, Hanoi suggested only a ceasefire statement and the five-kilometer withdrawal from the border and the meeting of Vietnamese and Cambodian diplomats. In Bien or another mutually acceptable capital, in order to set the date, place, and level of a meeting between the two governments, this proposal was also rejected by the Pol Pot government. However, even more persuasive than such factual evidence is the fact that Pol Pot had clearly enunciated the political objectives which propelled the Khmer Rouge toward armed conflict with Vietnam. That objective was explained to Sinanuk personally in 1975 by two of the Khmer Rouge's leading political figures, Hugh Sampson and San Sin. In the past, they said our leaders sold out Kampuchea Krom, sold out South Vietnam to the Vietnamese, our armies can accept the status quo. We must make war against Vietnam to get back Kampuchea Krum. Kampuchean refugees interviewed by Ben Kiernan in France during 1979 to 1980 likewise reported on Khmer Rouge intentions. One woman tells of a Khmer Rouge cadre 
newly arrived to our province in late 1977, telling the local meeting that Kampuchea aimed to fight to recover Kampuchea Krom from Vietnam, as well as Siren and other provinces from Thailand. Another refugee recalled that the director of a mineral factory had told a meeting that we aim to liberate the people of Kampuchea Krom and have already liberated 10 to 20,000 of them. Pol Pot's socialism. Pol Pot's notion of socialism and the Kampuchean hat to, to it is probably the greatest caricature ever advanced in practice under the name of Marxism. The Khmer Rouge experiment made even the worst excesses of Mao's cultural revolution look like a model of materialism. The Pol Pot factions infantile leftism intersect with and was reinforced by its nationalist deviation, attempting to advance the Khmer nation with as little outside assistance or interference as possible. Khmer Rouge promoted a mystical glorification of the class most uncontaminated by the outside world, peasantry. In this way, the characteristic petty bourgeois socialism of the radicalized intelligentsia became invested with the moral authority of the toiling masses. But the departure from the proletarian worldview remained qualitative nonetheless. Pol Pot's conception of socialism was essentially a peasant-based, instantly achieved egalitarian society. And although a smattering of Marxist terminology was used to describe this process, there was nothing at all Marxist about the bizarre experiment in socialism that resulted. Heder's viewpoint, which I have cited here because it is typical of an outlook that had considerable currency on the left at that time, helps to cast light on a particular strain among those who consider themselves anti-revisionist in the 1960s and 70s, a tendency to view Marxism's historical materials emphasis on the role of society's productive forces in establishing the material foundation for the development of socialism as being in of itself a sign of revisionism. Such anti-revisionism has had few opportunities to be actually tested in practice. To be exact, only twice, China's Cultural Revolution and Pol Pot's even more radical version of it. A closer look at Pol Pot's socialism, therefore, will be useful not only for understanding the nature of the disaster that befell Camp Uchia from 1975 to 1979, but also a first-hand examination and critique of left-wing petty bourgeois socialism in practice. In doing so, we might take the liberty of employing the Maoist style to describe Pol Pot's line on socialist construction as the theory of the three instants, instant transition to socialism, instant elimination of all class and social distinctions, and instant transformation of Campuchian social and ideological life. Let us examine each in turn. This book, we haven't gone into the whole background. Maoism was at was growing in the world communist movement. 
the cultural evolution was identical, a social experience, experiment, to say that the enemy is not capitalism, but the enemy is modernization. Anything modern was considered the enemy. All the universities, which were the centers of science, which science was always the center of Marxism-Leninism. They were closed. Everybody with glasses, like I have on now, was suspect. I don't know if you know that. And everybody in the cities who had glasses were immediately sent to the country. The idea is that everybody has to be purified with the life of a peasant. So the peasants were elevated, and the workers who come from cities were de-elevated. Very important to see the difference. The left in the West glorified Maoism. They had a romantic love affair with Maoism. The so-called same left that we have now, which some of us call synthetic or fake. They're not the real left. The real left is the working class left. The ones that came out of the working class movement. The intelligentsia is a fake left. And that's exactly what happened there. So all the building of the factories, everything was shut. The cities were emptied out. Cities were bad. And uh, I, I just want to explain that the ultra-left Maoist movement was the only ones that directing Pol Pot. Remember, there were two countries that supported Pol Pot in the world communist and no communist movement. And what only one was China. And who was the other country that supported them? The United States. Look at the role of the United States and the United Nations supporting Pol Pot and not the anti-Pol Pot people. That tells you a lot. The ultra-left always winds up on the same side as the State Department of the United States. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And, and just real quick to give some context to that as well. The bombing campaign in Cambodia actually allowed the Khmer Rouge to take more and kind of help their rise to power. But after the Vietnamese intervention and the, the establishment of the People's Republic of Kampuchea, uh, the Khmer Rouge was still active and still was attacking that government for years. And the U.S. actually aided and armed them in that period of time. So that goes to show just how the United States will use them um, against, you know, their their enemies. What's going on? I've noticed a couple contradictions, both in the text and comments made after. In the text, it says, well, you know, this uh, information about, well, I mean, it's like this is imperialist distortion. And we're calling, um, you know, the Cambodian Communist Party a uh, uh, Khmer Rouge throughout the whole thing, which is an imperialist name. The sources are from American journalists, um, you know, anti-communists that were in the party who had left the party. And then it's like this whole thing of like, oh, the cities were evacuated, like because of the bombing campaign. Like, it's just like, like, and then it's just like the genocide is like the same number as the, the casualties caused by the, the conflict. It's like, 
were they killing their own people or are they killing Quebec? Like, it's all like a, a bunch of contradictions that don't. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to answer that. This is the General Secretary Angelo. That is, it may look like that on the surface. I was involved at the time when you people weren't born. All you people here who are a certain age were not born. The people of my generation, there was a division. The party split in the film that was made in the beginning, April 17th, 1975. The communist movement was unified in, in, in uh, Cambodia, in Kampuchea. There was a split, the same split that was happening in Grenada and that was happening in Afghanistan. There was a split between the ultra left and the main part of the party. That's what was going on. Remember, there was not, because a, a clock that's broken tells the time once doesn't mean uh, anything. It happens to tell the time once. So because the bourgeoisie, as they did in World War II, was saying the same thing about fascism that the communists were saying about fascism, doesn't mean that it's illegitimate just because the bourgeoisie is saying it. If the communists are saying the, the same thing, then you have to look at it clearer. And we were saying at the time that what was going on was an ultra-left deviation. Lenin says it in his book very clearly. And we should not be, um, be infected by that. Clearly, very clearly, Popat threw his lot in with the peasantry. That alone is a deviation for Marxism-Leninism. Our love is not with the peasantry. Never was. They were the ones that caused problems in the Bolshevik Revolution. Remember, it came from the peasantry, a section of the peasantry uh, called kulaks. So just keep all that in mind. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't end up mentioning at the end the um, equivalence with uh, the Cultural Revolution in China. But at the start of the reading, it really struck me how similar it was to the Cultural Revolution, just on a much more uh, destructive and grand scale this uh, Cambodian genocide. I just thought that was interesting. Thank you. Yeah, and I just also want to offer a correction real quick. I was just looking it up to try to clarify it. You know, unfortunately, I can't get Cambodian or Vietnamese sources from the 1970s. I do have just Western sources. But it appears that the evacuation of Phnom Penh and the excuse that it was going to be bombed was false and that they told them they had to leave for three days. It was much longer than that. It was an excuse for them to be able to uh, basically do that instant transformation of society. So it was just a, it was just an excuse. And there are plenty of, of communists at the time, like Erwin Silber, uh, that were around, that were there, and that know about this history. So the whole idea of the forced evacuations was just to basically eliminate the already the working class and the rest of the professional class into just one large peasantry. That was the idea of the instant elimination of 
classes. And of course, as in the ideological sector, a lot of odd ideas came around. The idea of just typical life with groups of people, uh, the way people dress up was in a certain way was if you dressed in a certain way that was considered bourgeois, you were punished for that as well as the forcible closing down of all the places of worship as well as basically the elimination as said basically they're only they basically set up an art autarky a bit of trade at one point but that was it yes <clears throat> so i read the book and did the audio book for it um, there is just one thing I'd like to mention about Pol Pot being a big tell that he works for imperialism. Um, so the author of this book, one of the people who researched and helped write, write this book, went to Cambodia and obviously studied and did interviews there. Um, he also went to the Vietnamese and asked them for information about this era just to get his facts straight. And he found out that one of the Vietnamese um, Liberation Front's uh, groups intercepted a radio transmission from the Khmer Rouge that they were receiving from off the main, mainland, like somewhere in the ocean, probably from a naval ship during this time. And the only ones that would have a naval ship out that, out that far typically were the U.S. So that's a huge tell that he was probably, but Pol Pot was probably taking his orders directly from like Washington or CIA that way. And these transmissions would come in like the middle of the night, 1, 2 a.m., where most people would be asleep. That's just some more context as to explain like he straight up probably was a CIA plant and just straight up took orders from the U.S. Uh, another thing is if you as you read the book, uh, you'll notice that pretty much every important decision he chooses, Pol Pot literally chooses like the worst decision all the time, and that's not normal. Uh, the only way a man could make the worst decision in every single case was if, if he was doing it purposely, under orders, or trying to ruin something or achieve some sort of goal. Um, I would have to argue that if it wasn't for, like Pol Pot literally holds, I think, most of the responsibility along with the Khmer Rouge for ruining socialism in Cambodia. If if he if they weren't in power, socialism would I could guarantee you would probably win in um, Cambodia during this time. There was a movie out many many years ago that I highly recommend to all those who may be interested in watching. It's known as The Killing Fields, and this movie was a portrayal of life under Pol Pot's Cambodia following the war, uh, from the emptying of Phnom Penh to the resettlement of all the uh, city dwellers in the countryside that were forced into peasantry, 
the uh, executions among those who uh, disagreed with uh, the ideology of the Khmer Rouge. It's a fascinating movie. It's about two hours long. And this movie basically was uh, written by a Cambodian who actually went through all that. And I think he died now. I think his name was Hung. I forgot what his name was. But anyway, it's a movie I highly recommend to all those who want to see maybe firsthand to a realist how realistic it was under Pol Pot's Cambodia during that during that time of the genocide. And also, don't forget what happened also on Koh Tang Island, where a U.S. I think uh, contingent was held hostage by the Khmer Rouge for several. For all length of time, Angelo may know me what I'm talking about. He's nodding his head. Uh, that's another facet, too, that you should bring to the forefront, that the Khmer Rouge did intercept a U.S. vessel and held the crew captive for many years until, well, not many years, for many for a few months until there was a negotiated settlement to free the hostages. And this was on Koh Tang Island. I forgot the name of the vessel. But it was on Tang Island during the... Uh, occupation of the Khmer Rouge during uh, that time frame. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Okay. You have the floor, comrade. uh, First thing we have real quick is actually a clip. Uh, This is from the uh, Vietnamese uh, um, uh, Kampuchean conflict, but it's also when China gets involved. So I just wanted to play that real quick. Elsewhere overseas today, Vietnam and Cambodia are escalating their conflict. Cambodia said today that Vietnamese fighter planes bombed only 35 miles from Phnom Penh, and further that there is heavy fighting underway on the border. China, which is Cambodia's principal ally today, accused Vietnam of turning the struggle into a full-scale war. As Jim Laurie reports tonight, the Chinese are conditioning their own citizens for war. This parade in Nanning, China, 75 miles from the Vietnam border, was supposed to be part of an ordinary anniversary celebration, but with it came a strong warning for people here to prepare for war. Peking accuses Hanoi of escalating anti-Chinese attacks as a diversion from its widening war with Cambodia. Both the escalation and the saber-rattling has alarmed Asian leaders and prompted the U.S. State Department to voice its concern. The major flashpoint is here along the Vietnam-Cambodia border. Western military analysts say the Vietnamese have moved nearly 50 miles into Cambodia, the aim to set up in the city of Cotier the newly announced Cambodian Liberation Movement. This film, shot by a French photographer along the border last summer, shows some of the hardware Vietnam has to wage that offensive. American-built equipment, 13 army divisions, and 30,000 Vietnamese-trained Cambodian guerrillas. Using this propaganda film, Cambodia has put up a brave face. China, Cambodia's major ally, has advised the Cambodians to take to the jungles and fight a protracted war. The leader of the oppressive Cambodian regime, Paul Pot, admits he may have to give up his eastern territory. But what concerns analysts most is the possibility of further escalation. Right now, Vietnam is somewhat restrained by fear of Chinese retaliation. China is cautious because the Soviet Union, Vietnam's main backer, could intervene directly. But as one diplomat here put it, what if one of these forces miscalculates? Jim Laurie, ABC News in Hong Kong. A lot of people that come to us are infected already. This is my observation. 
60 years in the in this communist movement they don't realize it but they're infected with stuff that they get from the bourgeoisie and one of the things is ultra leftism they don't even realize it and know it the revolution rescue the tasks facing Kampuchea's communists after the ouster of Pol Pot were staggering. The most fundamental processes of a national economy, along with the basic institutions of civil society, had to be restored. Hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people, had to be able to return to their homes and reunite with their families. A people standing on the verge of famine had to be supplied with food and the basic means of survival. The people's most fundamental health and sanitation needs had to be met. The political and military victory over Pol Pot had to be secured. The new communist-led government had to establish its political authority with a populace which, while joyful at its liberation, was highly suspicious of those who spoke in the name of socialism. In trying to accomplish these aims, without which the new government could not begin to unfold more far-reaching programs for economic development and the transformation of social relations, the Kampuchean communists also faced an armed and highly dangerous counter-revolution in a largely hostile international climate. The response to the ouster of Pol Pot. The forcible ouster of the Pol Pot regime was greeted with predictable outrage by that strange assortment of forces whose one point in common was hostility to the Vietnamese Revolution. The United States, which had gleefully trumpeted news of Pol Pot's genocidal policies, turned around and quickly condemned Vietnam for its role in toppling the regime. The ASEAN countries, all of whom had deplored the brutalities of the Pol Pot regime, likewise joined in the outcry, with Thailand quickly offering the remnants of the Khmer Rouge sanctuary across the border. Most enraged was the leadership of the Communist Party of China, who undertook to, quote, teach Vietnam a lesson by launching what turned out to be an ill-fated invasion of Vietnam along their common border. The CPC's fury was understandable. Despite a number of reports indicating that China's leaders were themselves highly dubious of the wisdom of Pol Pot's social program, his anti-Vietnamese regime was a key building block in a broader Chinese plan designed to isolate Vietnam and expand its own anti-Soviet influence throughout Southeast Asia. The loss of Pol Pot might not have been deemed negative in itself so much as the fact that he was replaced with a pro-Vietnamese government prepared to resume the historically close ties between the three revolutions in Indochina and the international communist movement as a whole. And as happened so often, echoing these international expressions of anguish and indignation was a section of the U.S. left, the Maoist sects, some of whom had promoted glowing accounts of Pol Pot's, quote, revolutionary socialism to anyone who were innocent enough to listen, quote, were predictably furious. Denunciations ranged from the revolutionary communist parties relatively restrained for them, the Vietnamese revisionist takeover of Kampuchea was despicable. From Revolution, Volume 4, Numbers 2 to 3, page 2, to wild charges that Vietnamese troops were slaughtering its Kampuchea's citizen and systematically pillaging the country. The most explicit rendition of Maoism's political and ideological framework was offered by the Communist Party, at the time the U.S. Maoist grouping, which had been afforded, quote, most favored status by Beijing declaring that, quote, the invasion of Kampuchea is a part of the Soviet global plan of aggression, counter-revolution, and domination. The CP called the defense of dem democratic Kampuchea a touchstone of proletarian internationalism, and what the CP meant by proletarian internationalism was made a bit clearer 
in prominently featuring a statement by its sister Maoist party, the Communist Party of Australia, that, quote, the central issue in world politics is the quarantining and containment of Soviet social imperialism. This is just as important, even more important, than quarantining and containment of Hitler in the 1930s. In conclusion, the rescue of the Kampuchean Revolution is a major accomplishment, which the Vietnamese and Khmer communists have rendered the peoples of their countries, the socialist camp, and the international working class movement more broadly. Vietnam's courageous decision to play the role it did in Kampuchea was bound to incur the wrath of its powerful neighbor to the north and to provide imperialism and its allies with a pretext for stepping up their counter-revolutionary designs against the countries of Indochina. The caterwauling quibbles of those on the left who found themselves embarrassed by Vietnam's assertion of revolutionary power, to say nothing of the lingering cries of the Maoists who once again find themselves in league with imperialist-backed Contras, must fade into the historical insignificance in the face of what has been accomplished in Indochina over the past seven years. A revolution derailed by a rampantly chauvinist, infantile left deviation in the communist movement has been put back on track. A people and a country brought to the brink of extinction have been resuscitated. A major counter-revolutionary enterprise with powerful international patrons has been dealt a devastating military and political setback. In Kampuchea itself, the difficult process of affecting the transition to socialism has begun. Revolutionary power in all three Indochinese countries has been reinforced and the revolutionary alliance strengthened. The outpost of socialism established in Southeast Asia as the result of the arduous revolutionary struggles of the peoples of Vietnam, Laos, and Kampuchea have been strong, successfully defended and secured, its ties to the socialist camp stronger than ever. And once again, machinations of U.S. imperialism in this instance, working in close cooperation with a Chinese party and government which continues to function as a renegade force in world communism, have been frustrated by the joint efforts of Indochinese revolutionaries and the socialist camp. With this accomplishment, the communists of Vietnam, Laos, and Kampuchea have made yet another profound contribution to the cause of peace, justice, and socialism. One thing that I just want to say that sticks out to me the most in this whole thing is just how much the Sino-Soviet split played a role in this and just how just how consequential the Sino-Soviet split is. I mean, it's really a result of infantile leftism, of not being able to put aside your differences with the other countries and continue that anti-imperialist block in the world. Um, if there had not been a Sino-Soviet split, would there have been a complete war, civil war like this in Southeast Asia? Would there have been a Chinese intervention in Vietnam? Would Vietnam nowadays turn to the United States for aid and still be in conflict with China? I think that these are valuable questions for us to ask as we think about this, You know, especially considering that before the Sino-Soviet split, you had a powerful, powerful bulwark in the world against U.S. imperialism. And after all the Cold War and after 1991, you didn't have that bulwark, and it took years to build that back up again. So it's really consequential. Yeah, just, uh, you know, the priorities uh, uh, earlier back in that passage when uh, the uh, Communist Party of Australia, Maoist, when they said that, uh, uh, that the containment of uh, Soviet social imperialism was somehow more of a, even more of a priority than say hypothetically fighting the Nazis. It shows you where their priorities really lie. 
That's it's embarrassing, truly. That's all. Thank you. And remember what was going on at this time. You had the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan in 1979, more areas where they were right to be involved in the world. And what was China doing? There's a sister ideology to ultra leftism. And that says a plague on both your houses. Why do I call it a sister? Because objectively, they wind up on the same side. Objectively, the ultra left and the, uh, and the other side that says a plague on both your houses, they wind up on the same side as being anti-Soviet and pro-US. That's the, uh, not subjectively, not what they want. Remember Comrade Lenin said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's Lenin. Says it over and over again. And he refers to those who have good intentions. Uh, oh yeah, we support the party. We do this. We do that. We're, we love the party. And what do they wind up doing? Splitting the party. That is not loving. Destroying the unity on outside of the fence against U.S. imperialism is not loving us. It's actually hating us. So I want to stress that the ultra-left, the wreckers, many times are on the same side as those who say, well, both of you are wrong. Let's look at the issue of the Ukraine. Perfect example. And what it has done in the communist movement. So the ultra-left is on the same side as those who say, the ultra-left blames who? Russian imperialism. Remember that. So therefore, Russian imperialism is just as bad, if not worse, than American imperialism, which is the, the scourge of humanity is American imperialism. So just remember that. Think of it. Have things changed from the time that the Maoists said that Soviet imperialism is worse than American imperialism? Think about it. Nothing has changed. The basic kernel of birth from ultra-leftism is petty bourgeois radicalism. That was said very clearly by Comrade Gus Hall in his book, uh, pamphlet, Petty Bourgeois Radicalism. That's where it comes from. Thank you. Uh, Soviet social imperialism, Russian imperialism, the terms change, but the goal stays the same, to support U.S. imperialism and to fight against anybody that fights against it. Yeah, I guess my question is, Are what are our methods of protection? Because I kind of see democratic centralization as being one of the primary modes of how we protect from ultra-leftism. But it also seems like so many ultra-leftism don't really, at the end of the day, it seems like they don't really actually support democratic centralization. So besides education, what are our other options to combat that? Thanks. Party protocol. We have a protocol in our party. All Bolsheviks do. You follow the party protocol. Whenever you start following your own individual inclinations, you know you're going on the wrong road. Stay with the party. Don't stay with your own individual inclinations, in my opinion. As long as you stay with the collective, you have a lot of minds thinking about something. 
once you start throwing those away and just deal with your mind, you're going to come out with a different answer. So the answer is stay with the party protocols, which means democratic centralism. And my, my observations has always been people start on individual levels. Well, I disagree with, with the collective on this one thing. Well, eventually you're going to disagree with the collective on another thing. So now you're going to be two things. And eventually you have one foot out of the collective. And you're going to be on your merry way all by yourself. You will never be happy in any party. I'm telling you this, comrades. Because every party has something wrong. When you start thinking on your own. Thank you. Uh, why did uh, like Thailand and other Asian countries uh, oppose, uh, condemn the uh, removal of all Pol Pot? Great question. I mean, I think it goes to show where their interests lie in that region and what Pol Pot represented in terms of being an anti-Soviet, anti-international communist movement force. I mean, that was his whole thing of separating from the international communist movement to go ahead and set up, you know, as Kai described, an autarky Cambodia. So you can see why U.S.-backed forces in the region, you know, cheered on that that removal. Um, or, I mean, sorry, I think I might have misunderstood that question. But if somebody has a better um, better response, then they can have the floor. Um, in that video that we watched, that news report, the anchor said something interesting. He said that um, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge were fighting for something called protracted war. Well, that's what the ultra-left loves. They, the Maoists love this theory of protracted people's war. Uh, so I found that kind of interesting. Um, I guess uh, during this period, the question that I have is what was the response of the new left because this is around the time that the new left was pretty active. Yeah, I could I could answer that. Uh, Irving Sibler does not come out of our background. He originally was in the new left. You all know that. Let me give you the history of him. Irving Sibler came out of the old CP. He was involved with a magazine in the cultural section of the old party in the 50s called Sing Out. S-I-N-G-O-U-T. You should try to look it up on the Google. Um, then he went from that into the new left. So he became a big shot in the Guardian uh, newspaper, which became the mouthpiece of the Students for a Democratic Society. I was involved. That's how I know all these people personally. Then uh, on the issue of Gorbachev, he joined a group called um, oh God, I can't think of it right now. But they hated Gorbachev and were opposed to Perestroika. So they were playing a positive role, in my opinion. They were opposed to Gorbachev and Perestroika. Um, then he left that group. And he went into an anti-Soviet thing. I met him at a meeting where I represented U.S. friends of Soviet people which he stood up and attacked uh, the Soviet Union. So here's a guy 
who went from the CP to the ultra left to uh, attack uh, to attacking Perestroika. He seconds. was positive, positive, and then he went to attack the whole Soviet Union system. The guy is all over the place. He's still alive, I think. He's still alive, but um, un unlike those of us who are consistent, when we first got involved in this communist movement, we we have the same analysis now that we did then. We are continuing to carry the red flag, the original red flag. Thank you. But I do want to thank all the comrades for everything they said tonight. And I think that this was a needed class. Uh, we've been, it's been suggested a, a lot of times, and now we've finally been able to do it. And we're definitely going to have more classes on this period of history. I know we need to have one on the actual cultural revolution in China. It wouldn't be bad to have a class on the Chinese invasion of Vietnam. Um, it wouldn't even be bad to have a class on the differences between now and then. Um, because Vietnam is not the same thing it was then. China is not the same thing it was then. And it would be important for us to have the historical context to know how nowadays is different. The situation in the world communist movement has been the same since the very beginning. The 1920s, we had three roads ahead of us. We had the center, which was Comrade Stalin building socialist construction. That was the center. But we had people on the left of us. They were the Trotskyites. They were calling for permanent revolution, not building the Soviet Union up, but having permanent revolution. And then there were the people on the right, of uh, Bukharanites, Nikolai Bukharin. And they were calling for extending the, um, the period where we would have a market socialism. That's what they were calling for. So you had those on the left who were saying permanent revolution, those on the right, market socialism, and those in the center. We, our grouping has always been in the center. We always followed the Stalin model and the Stalin line. So that famous picture should be done at all the schools, showing the person walking the tightrope. You remember that one. You should be showing that. At every, it's only a, for a second or three seconds, showing the person walking the tightrope. That's the model we have. Go slow, try to get to where our goal is. Our goal is Marxism, Leninist society. And go slow as you're walking that tightrope. Don't be impatient. Do not be impatient and walk fast because you're going to wind up falling. And you're going to wind up falling on the left or on the right. Either way, you're going to fall to your death. On the left, you're falling into anarchism, Trotskyism, Maoism, any kind of ultra-leftism. If you fall on your right, you're going to fall into reformism, revisionism, social democracy. In both cases, you're going to fall to your death, politically, ideologically. So stay on the tightrope and stay in the center of the communist movement. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for attending tonight, comrades, and have a good night. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, 
listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.